0: to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Well, I'd just like to say one more time that it's, it's wonderful to see you all again. Uh, my wife and I enjoy My wife Jo is here in the front row. I'm sorry I didn't introduce her earlier. But thank you for being such a welcoming church and the love that you exhibit, the Christ-likeness, the fruit that I see in all of you. Praise be God for what he has done in this church here. And what a wonderful pastor you have I'd like to thank you for our, uh, our piano player today, playing such great uh, music. It's been a delight listening to her on the keyboards. So, uh, And I just also want to mention, this is, uh, why this is such a delight coming here, is that I grew up in Plattsburgh, and um, we used to come camping down to Paradox Lake, which is just up the road, I believe. And when I was 13 years old or so, that's where I learned how to swim, so in this area. Uh, I have fond memories as a little boy. So... Our sermon today, though, our scripture reading is going to be Psalm 139. Again, it is not 138. Psalm 139. This is the infallible, inerrant. An eternal word of, of God. I'm reading from the New King James Version, so there's a little difference from your version. You'll know why. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my laying down. And you're acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue but behold, O Lord, you know it all You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I send it, if I send it to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book all were written the days fashioned for me. When as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more than number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your Lord's day. And we thank you for meeting with us today. And we know that we can come before you only because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who gives us a righteousness that we can come without fear and condemnation for you are a holy God but yet you stoop and you are with us this day even now where we sit is holy ground and we pray that you would bless as the word goes forth Lord I pray that you'd bless it you say your word will not return to you void pray that you would work that you would use me as your servant and bless these dear ones this day may you be glorified and may your people be edified I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ And for his name's sake, O Lord, amen. Now, if you do a Google search, a Google search on the meaning and the purpose of life, it's the age-old question that mankind has asked from the very beginning. Here's some of the things you'll find on the web. Carl Sandburg, who is an American poet and biographer, he says, life is like an onion. You peel it off one layer at a time, and sometimes you weep. Kelly Clarkson, she's a singer. She she sings, when I'm lost, I just look into your eyes. You show me the meaning of life. The sole meaning of life is to serve humanity, according to Leo Tolstoy. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he said, the key to life is continuously being hungry. Now, we know that those kinds of answers don't in any way satisfy the human spirit. Our inquiry and longing go much deeper than that. We see a sad example of trying to find the meaning of life from the famous artist. Maybe you know, you've know, heard of him, famous painting, Paul Gauguin. In his creation of a painting that was renowned in the 19th century, it was called, Where Do We Come From, What Are We, and Where Are We Going? Now, the painting wasn't famous initially, but like a lot of Gauguin's paintings, it became prized and valued after his death. In fact, Gauguin influenced the famous, the great artist, uh, artist Picasso. The painting is notable for its enigmatic subject and atmosphere. Gauguin believed that his paintings had abstract, inexplicable qualities that could not be expressed in words. Some scholars have attributed the characteristics of this particular painting to the personal conflicts that Gauguin had uh, in creating this era. Artwork in 1897. This is when he was living in Tahiti. Over the previous year, his favorite daughter had died of pneumonia. He ran into debt and financial ruin, and his health was failing him. Now, if you've ever seen the painting that I'm referring to, it portrays men, women, and infants, and even various animals, like, such as cats, goats, birds, seemingly engaged in everyday activities. The exception, there's a statue in the background. It kind of resembles Buddha. And in the forefront of the painting, you have a man holding something up over his head. That's right front and center. Now, Gauguin Gauguin considered this painting. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going as his masterpiece and his final artistic achievement? You can see it today in the Boston, or the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Experts in the art world also considered it a masterpiece. It was actually pegged as a philosophical work comparable to the themes of the gospel. Well, if it was, it didn't have that kind of effect at all on Gauguin since he unsuccessfully tried to commit suicide shortly after finishing the painting. Now, Gauguin was brought up Roman Catholic, and he may have been exposed to the answers to the question he assigned to in his painting, but it's one thing to know something intellectually. It's another thing to know it in a life transforming way. He survived trying to take his own life, but with his questions still unanswered, at age 51, he took up residence with a 14 year old girl, a daughter of a native couple in 1899. This is when he was still in Tahiti and he had two children by her. He tra- tragically died a few years later in 1903. Fast forward today. Things haven't changed. We look at our current society, wondering how things could get any worse. We see our children being taught that they are basically a cosmic accident, a product of the primordial slime. They face many challenges today as they try to make sense of their lives. They ask such things like Am I what my status in society is? Am I my possessions? Am, am I my looks? Thanks to smartphones and the social media, our culture of death is catechizing our kids around the clock. In their book, Faith for Exiles, research done by David Kinneman and Mark Mad- Madlock revealed that only 10% of 18 to 29-year-olds 20, today who grew up as Christians are embracing a lifestyle of consistent discipleship. The basic questions resulting for our search for significance can only truly and satisfactorily be answered by God and His Holy Word. We find an example of that today in our reading of Psalm 139. I divided up the sermon into three sections. The first six verses, I've entitled it, God Knows All. Verses 7 through 16, God is everywhere and all-powerful. And then in the last seven verses, 17 through 24, God's truth for life. Now in this psalm, David, the author, is calling on God, likely during time he's, during a time he's being ruthlessly pursued by King Saul. He's fleeing because his life was in danger because of Saul's jealousy of him. Now a person observing David's circumstances during this time may say that he's alone. Only he isn't alone. He looks to the one he delights and lives for. God is with him. The first six verses of the psalm reflect the omniscience of God. That is, that God sees and knows everything. Now, many Christians will hear the term omniscience when describing God, and they would say, or they would think, oh, here we go again with those big doctrinal or theological terms. Many draw back when theological terms are mentioned, but theology is just learning what God is like. Psalm 139, our scripture reading today, abounds with things that form our theology, that is, our understanding of God. In truth, every Christian, each and every Christian, is a theologian. R.C. Sproul said that, since we all have a particular view of God in our minds. But we see that God's omniscience in the Psalm is not expressed here as mere doctrine. It is confessed in worship as wonder and adoration. Bringing God's truth back to him in prayer as David is doing is something that God delights in because in doing so, we are affirming his word and trusting in it. A.W. Tozer writes about the Lord's omniscience that God knows and sees all. He says, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, Motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. Yes, he's God. Knows all these things. Notice David doesn't say, oh God, you know all things. But instead, you have known me. He says that in the first verse. David knows there was never a time when he was unknown to God. The same goes for all of us here. We are never beyond his observation. We see this from the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 12, verse 3. Jeremiah says, But you, O Lord, know me, you have seen me, and you have tested my heart towards you. Now, our actions every day may be habitual, they may be intended, unintended, they may be open or secret, but with them all, the holy God is well acquainted. This should fill us with a high view and respect for God, so that we sin not, with courage that we fear not, with delight that we mourn not. We see this, these three effects of David as we read the first six verses. First, he honors God through his obedience. David, while being hunted, might have responded by just taking the life of his enemy. Just do away with what with threatens him. That is, get rid of Saul. But because he knows that God knows all, he refrains from harming Saul. Because Saul was the Lord's anointed. He doesn't sin even when he had two easy opportunities to to do so. Both instances are recorded in Scripture in 1 Samuel 24 and then the other one in 1 Samuel 26. Because of David's accurate understanding of God, not a small view of God, he had a large view. He fears God and he obeys. Second, David also finds courage that God knows the real story regarding King Saul's false accusations against him. Now think of the times in your life when you've been misread by others. Your good motives and your intentions have been misunderstood and you may receive flat from others. People may often misjudge us or fabricate stories about us from their limited information. God, however, knows the true situation. We read in verse 5 that God has hedged David behind and before and laid his hand upon him. Behind us, there is God recording our sins and in grace blotting them out, any remembrance of them. There's no need to mourn endlessly over them. They have been removed. And before us, there is God's foreknowledge, God foreknowing all our deeds and providing all our needs. We cannot turn back to escape him because he's behind us having called us to himself. We cannot go too forward with vain or foolish actions because he's in front of us and he won't let us. In such a position, he also providently assigns us trials and tribulations, at times lest we think we can handle our lives just fine without him. In those times, we learn most of God's presence. It's not a distant one, but it's very clear and near to us. Thirdly, David in verse 6 is filled with awe. He says all these things about God. He says, it is high. I cannot attain it. David cannot grasp this attribute of an all-knowing God, a God that knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows the very numbers our, on our head, Matthew 10.30, God who knows every, even the moments and the needs of a little bird, a little sparrow, we find that in Matthew 10.29. This knowledge of God certainly surpasses our comprehension, but also our imagination as well. It seems to always be too high for us, even during times of our deepest thinking about him. Our finite, carnate minds have no capacity for which to measure the infinite. Now, what are we to do with a God before whom all hearts are open and all desires known? For the believer, this is his or her pleasure. It's a joy worth more than anything that the world could offer us. David certainly is not alarmed at the fact that God knows all about him. In fact, on the contrary, he is comforted and enriched with great blessings. For those that reject Christ, the perfection of God's knowledge is disturbing, however, which is one reason, reason why people so try so hard not to think about God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 that people suppress the truth about God. Now, if they only think about God in more limited ways, such as, the man upstairs, or creating him in their own minds, in their own image, the idea of God's knowledge of us is often reduced to secular jokes or newspaper cartoons. We see this every day. The subject, however, is not so amusing when we consider Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 13, which states, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In verses 7 through 16, David continues to praise God for who he is. This now by proclaiming that he is everywhere. This we call his omnipresence, the reason he knows all things. David tells, us, tells, of, excuse me, David tells of this by asking a series of rhetorical questions, starting in verse 7. He imagines three different conditions in which escape from God might be possible but he doesn't dismisses each one because he knows the Lord. The first thing he mentions is distance. He contrasts the highest high and the lowest low in verse 8, and as far as the east is from the west in verse 9. David says if he flees to heaven, naturally God is there. If he tries to bury himself in the lowest core in the depths of the earth, God is there too. Now if the word hell is taken literally, we know that the Lord is there also executing justice. This also can contrast the two destinations of eternal life, one of glory and one of utter darkness. David then adds that if he traveled to the uttermost corners of the world, dwelling in the uttermost parts of the sea, the Lord is still present. The second thing he describes after distance is speed. Taking the wings of the morning refers to the speed of light. In the psalm, when the light of dawn shows itself, it moves from east to west almost immediately so fast that it fills the sky and the world. We don't see the light moving. It just happens. That light is that fast. David, David even moving as fast as the light, could not outrun or be separated from God. And in verse 10, even in distant places, God always holds him wherever he is and whatever he is doing as if he was residing in his own home. Now our missionaries that we send out into the world and support, they know this essential truth. They have the determination, they have the courage to travel to all parts of the world to proclaim the gospel because they are in both the hands of God. They are his servants and he is there to sustain them. It doesn't matter where they go since God is present with them. David knows distance and great speed can't remove him from God's sight. Now he talks about the third aspect, hiding himself in darkness. You'll find that in verses 11 and 12. As far as God is concerned, we always dwell in the light. We see in verse 12 that the darkness and the light are both alike to him. Now the wicked in the world, they always prefer the darkness for night, darkness of night for doing their evil deeds. Now why is that? Fallen men show their foolishness in thinking darkness can hide their deeds from being exposed. But nothing is hidden from him, so they might as well transgress in broad daylight. Still in their arrogance, they think, how does God know? Let me, let's let look to Psalm 73, verses 6 through 11. I'm reading from um, Psalm 73. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return there, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Now, in response to those last two questions, we could read Jeremiah twenty three twenty four, where God says, Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord. And verses 13 through 16, David's praise to the Lord is now reflected on his great power. We have seen David explain in the previous verses that the reason God knows all is because he is everywhere. Now he adds a second reason because he has created all things by his power. We refer to this attribute as his omnipotence. David says that God formed his inward parts and covered him in his mother's womb. God did not only views and sees this, but it is his own. Even in the darkness and innermost part of our mother's wombs, when we were lay hidden there, we were covered by the hand of God. David knows that who he is, his physical body, his personality, his soul, are wonderfully and skillfully designed by God as all are all his image bearers. We still see David filled with awe and admiration. We should too, and this should reflect us at least two ways. The way we view all image bearers, all people of all different races, political parties, socioeconomic status, All people have value and dignity and should be treated as such. They are made in God's image. And it should leave no room for feelings of inferiority. God made us for his own glory. We have value, each and every one of us. We have significance, purpose, because the Lord intentionally made us. And all his works are marvelous, as we find in verse 14 in the psalm. David continues in verse 16 God has established our future days that lay ahead. Even before we existed, we were in his sketchbook of foreknowledge and providence. Now, no one can read these verses thoughtfully today without considering their obvious bearing on the contemporary issue of abortion. What an affront to the Lord it is, the intentional destruction of his innocent image bearers. How dare people call these individuals that he has created, just a lump of tissue, and destroy the more than a million and a half babies he creates every year. Now, as we get into the last section of the psalm, we see, starting in verse 17, that David is reflecting on all that he has said of God and the impact it has on him. In amazement, he refers to God's thoughts about him by saying how precious they are. They are deep. And again, cannot possibly totally comprehend it. The Apostle Paul, when thinking about heavy things of God, when he's writing Romans, writing about the heavy doctrinal things about God and how, how God is, how he works, he breaks out into doxology in chapter 11, verse 33. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now, if God treated David and us as we deserve because of our sin, he could justly be watching over us to do us hurt. Because David, in his Psalm 51, when he's confessing his sin to the Lord, he basically says to God, God, if you chose to send me to hell for my sin, I can't blame you. However, we see a God who knew David, thought of him, and his thoughts towards him were thoughts of love. How often is the Lord faithful to us when we are unfaithful? We see example of this in Scripture. In the 7th century before Christ, God chastened his people for disobedience and he led them into captivity by the Babylonians. And despite all these horrors that were going on, you can read it for yourself in the Old Testament, he expresses this hesed, what the Hebrew word is hesed. It's a a Hebrew word referring to God's faithful covenant love to his people. We see this in Jeremiah 29:11. Despite all the things going on, he says, I, "For I know the thoughts that I think about you, think toward you," says the Lord. "Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope." How many of us can look back on our walk with Christ and see God working for us in his providence in ways we could never have imagined? in bringing us good. We may not see it in our present circumstances. We may be afflicted with difficulties blind to in, and blind to the invisible hand of God. But the Lord is there working for our good, often beyond what we have even asked or even hoped for. That's Romans eight twenty eight. As God's children, as we go about our lives, God is not only pardoning us, but He's also renewing us. He's upholding us. He's supplying us, educating us, and perfecting us. In fact, Spurgeon writes, there are a thousand other ways of blessing that well up in the mind of the Most High. Yes, God's good thoughts to us are more than number than the sand, verse 18 of the Psalm. But not only that, they're also constant. David says that when he wakes, God is still there. This is also proclaimed in the book of uh, Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. The writer says through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Matthew Henry, a commentator, writes that our thoughts concerning God must be delightful to us above any other thoughts. Now one thing that people are clamming for in our culture today, even unbelievers, is justice. In fact, I'm told this can be useful when sharing the gospel with unbelievers, bringing this idea of justice. God executes true justice. David says in verse 19 and 20 that he knows God who sees and knows all is grieved with the presence of evil. It is natural that he will remove the wicked by his power. His patience in seeing his good creation defaced and defiled by wickedness will come to an end. Wicked men may go unpunished in the court because of a lack of evidence. They may not be held accountable for breaking law due to into an incompetent or corrupt judge, but this cannot happen in the case with God. God's enemies take his name in vain, as stated in verse 20. They can use his name in jest or in the context of a swear word. Taking his name in vain. They can also do it by pretending to be religious or pious, acting as if though they were a friend of God, all the while using this to support their malicious plan. Jesus himself had described these kind of people, the scribes who devoured widows' houses in Luke, in the New Testament, Luke 20, verse 47. David says "I don't want to be, he doesn't want to be near them. He wants them to depart. He says he has the sincere and perfect hatred of them, and he considers them his enemies in verses 21 and 22. It's as if David is saying, if God will not let you live with him, I will not have you live with me. If you would destroy others, I therefore do not want to be associated with you in any way. Depart from me because you have departed from God. Now, to love all men with benevolence is our duty. But to love any wicked man with complacency would be a sin on our part. David himself, though he's a sinner, is so devoted to godliness so that he detested in his heart everything that was contrary to it. John Calvin writes that our attachment to godliness must be defective if it does not generate an abhorrence of sin, as David has spoken of in the psalm. Now, we may say, hate the sin, love the sinner. That's nice advice, but it's also hard to do since the love of the sinner, if we're not extremely careful, leads first to love of the sinner's sinful ways. And then, unfortunately, to a participation in them. But it helps to remember the words of Paul in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12. He says, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our true enemy is not other people. In verse 23, David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. He also has a request for God to try him and probe his innermost thoughts and feelings. Isn't it remarkable that a psalm beginning with David's declaration that God knows all things should end with a request of God to search and know David himself? God is being asked by David to use his great, perfect, and pervasive knowledge to benefit David personally. David is willing to submit himself to the Lord's, to God's correction and direction. This is a serious request since it can invite painful exposures of ourselves, of our sin. It's a type of spiritual surgery, you may say. But it's all important and it's a wonderful thing to pray for. It would be to our great detriment for sin to remain in our hearts unknown and undiscovered. Because we are precious to the Lord, He will graciously reveal things to us as He sees fit to bring forth His will. And what is his will? His will is our sanctification, that we grow more and more in holiness. First Thessalonians 4.13 Now in a world of eight billion people, it's tempting to think God has enough to look after, to be concerned with each and every individual. Yet here in the psalm, David has stated of God, you know me, you encompass me, you surround me, you created me. You test me. We've looked at big theological words like omniscience, that God knows all. Omnipresence, that God is everywhere. Omnipotence, that God is all powerful. They're all here in the psalm. Not the words themselves, but the truth of these words are though. David has written a practical psalm that embraces practical theology that forms our doctrine. We all have doctrine. Doctrine is important, but even more, we need correct doctrine. What we know about God affects every aspect of our life. The more we know about him, the greater capacity we have to love him and to worship him. As we grow in knowledge and love for him, the excellencies of God, the beauty of Christ becomes our chief delight. Nothing surpasses being in fellowship with the Lord, walking in steps with him, the Holy Spirit. We always worship what is the most meaningful to us. And God demands that it be he himself. That's what he has intended for us from the very beginning of creation. Everything else is futility, misery, and eventual death. This includes the preoccupation of many in the world trying to find meaning in their love lives. That's like Kelly Clarkson sings that I brought up at the beginning of the sermon. Ultimately, though, things like that only bring disappointment. Carl Sandberg, he's the one who said life is like an onion. You peel it off and sometimes you weep. In other words, suck it up, buttercup. However, the psalmist says, however, that tears, our tears are precious to the Lord. Psalm 56 says, you number my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book when I cry out to you? Then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. Leo Tolstoy, he's the one that said, our purpose for lives is to serve humanity. Sounds noble, but unfortunately, without Christ, we are in reality only serving ourselves as we boost our own righteousness. God regards such efforts of boosting our own righteousness as quote-unquote filthy rags. For only he alone gives true righteousness. The key to life is always being hungry, as Arnold Schwarzenegger said. However, however, this will only lead to starvation, eventual starvation, unless it is a hunger and thirst after righteousness that only God himself can supply. Yes, G.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says, Living becomes an awesome business when you realize that you spend every moment of your life in the sight of an all-knowing and ever-present God. Now, you can respond to this reality by saying this is a terrifying thing, or as David did, an unbelievable privilege. Now, what's the determining factor? What's the determining factor how we respond to this truth that God sees and knows it all, knows all? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and men. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul writes in chapter 5 of Romans, the first two verses, he says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It is by Christ that we not only have peace with God in forgiveness of sins, but also we have become adopted sons and daughters in Christ, and we can address God as Father. God commands all to come to Christ. No, it's not an invitation. Listen to the words of Paul as he's in Athens. In Acts 17, he says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now to those who give heed, that's the gospel, the good news, Jesus Christ. To those who give heed to this message of salvation of Christ, he gives eternal life and hope to those who are struggling in their existence. God's word provides the answers to the question, where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? Now, if only someone had said to go why don't you read the Bible? By doing so, he might found the answer to which question number one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Alistair Begg is always, always telling his congregation that we always need to think Christianly for faithful and joyous living. Now, how do we accomplish that? By giving heed to God's word, Psalm 119. So, I encourage you all to be diligent in reading your Bibles. Read good books and listen to good preachers. Your pastor can give great guidance on what to read and who to listen to. Not all books preaching and teaching on the internet, labeled as Christian, are always profitable. In fact, much can be found that is actually heretical. The more we know and understand about God, yes, our theology is the key in giving greater and greater worship to the one who is great and greatly to be praised. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being a God that knows all. You are everywhere, and you are all-powerful. We take comfort, Lord, that you watch over us. We thank you for the salvation we have in Christ. We have peace with you through him, and we delight in you being with us and knowing us as you do. Bless these dear ones this day. In Christ's name, amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Fork and Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to hurricanebaptist.com.